Thank you very much to Michael for that very warm introduction. You know, I'm rather impressed with you, too. Uh, Michael knew that we had a PowerPoint presentation. He was a little concerned since the days are lengthening that it may not be dark enough. And so I hear he made a certain arrangement with the heavens this evening. Uh, he must have connections. L allow me to begin, then, by acknowledging my competition. <clears throat> when Anne Harrington spoke here one month ago, she came up against two major religious holidays, Passover and Monday Thursday taking place on that same date. That was nothing compared to what I'm up against tonight. <laughs> I am speaking, of course, of The Matrix Reloaded. Science as both diabolical and redemptive technology Science is a seemingly real yet utterly virtual world of computer code in which people are unwittingly trapped like the prisoners in Plato's cave. Science is the empowering tool of Morpheus and his band of high-tech freedom fighters. Yet religion, too. Listen to the strong parallels one scholar draws between the original matrix and the central story of Christianity. Neo, like Jesus, is the long-expected Messiah who is ultimately killed, only to resurrect as a fully divine creature. The final scene even evokes the bodily ascent of Jesus to heaven. Also, Morpheus seems every bit the equivalent of John the Baptist, even to the point of baptizing Neo in a graphic scene in the liquid bowels of the human battery chambers. Trinity might be compared to Mary Magdalene, and Cypher clearly parallels Judas. He also notes the very important Buddhist theme of the Matrix, stressing our ignorance of existential reality as a fundamental problem both in Buddhism and the world depicted in the movie. So we have science on both sides, but most significantly science is a tool of the oppressor, and religion clearly is a source of insight and strength among Neo and his disciples. Science up against religion, and who wins? In the battle between diabolical science and religious insight, religion prevails, but the victory is short-lived. After all, the original matrix grossed a measly $165 million. Small change to many of us here, thus the imperative to produce sequels, such as that appearing on the movie screens tonight. Science and religion. Powerful stuff in our society is revealed in the Matrix and countless other instances of popular culture. This is ultimately why we are here tonight and why I am honored to deliver the closing lecture in a three-year series UC Santa Barbara has sponsored with the gracious support of the John Templeton Foundation on science, religion, and the human experience. This series was dedicated by Chancellor Henry Yang to the memory of Ninian Smart, former professor of religious studies at UC Santa Barbara, a pioneer in the study of religion and worldviews, and a trusted source of wisdom in the early days of planning this ambitious program. Our series began one Friday afternoon on April 20, 2001, when Nobel laureate Walter Cohn spoke to a literally overflowing lecture hall. 
We have had 16 to date, the most recent being Harvard historian Anne Harrington's lecture last month. In all, over 60 UCSB faculty drawn from across the physical and life sciences, social and behavioral sciences, and humanities have participated in some significant way in selecting speakers, serving as commentators, and presenting lectures. It would be rather presumptuous of me to claim to stand on the shoulders of these giants in this lecture. But I would like to examine one thread which is woven through many of these lectures, starting with Walter Cohn's reference to the Pope and ending with Anne Harrington's discussion of how science has been invoked to prove the healing efficacy of prayer. This is the thread of authority in science and religion. The approach I will take can be clarified by means of a well-known Buddhist proverb as represented in this early 19th century picture by a Zen artist priest. Here the childlike, rotund, enlightened figure Hotier points heavenward, note there is no actual moon, and asks, Mr. Moon, how old are you? Seventeen or three? Doctrine and teachings, according to this proverb, are like a finger pointing to the moon, which represents ultimate reality, or more properly, our experience of that ultimate reality. There is wisdom in this proverb, but a cursory reading would overlook how the moon and the finger are intertwined. Science and religion are often understood as mere fingers pointing transparently to reality and God or the sacred. Hence, a good deal of what you read about science and religion constitutes an attempt to harmonize reality and God, to bring these multiple moons together. Our lecture series has been based on an expanded premise. We are interested in the finger as well as the moon, the human experience of science and religion as well as the realities toward which science and religion point. We do this not because we don't believe in the moon, but because we wish to avoid the intellectual hypocrisy of making certain scientific or religious claims about the moon without acknowledging that this very act involves pointing a finger. I want to help clarify science and religion by taking the next step tonight. I am interested in the fingers pointing to the finger that points to the moon. When I was working for the Peace Corps in Southern Africa in the early 1980s, I met a man who was once a teacher and now wandered the streets of the small border town nearby with a pencil and small notebook in hand. And each time he passed an object that caught his eye, he would stop and take notes about it. This man's notebook was filled with glimpses of the moon. But no fingers pointed to him. Most people thought he was crazy. There will never be a lecture series devoted to this man. One may explain the difference in that science and religion offer such rich insights in comparison to the scribblings of a crazy man. But at bottom, the ultimate reason is that many fingers point, rightly or wrongly, to science and or religion, and no fingers ever pointed to him. So if we want to make sense of science and religion and the realities toward which science and religion point, we must also bring ourselves into the picture. It is our fingers pointing toward or away from science and or religion that complete the picture sketched by the Zen priest. This is why authority, or more precisely trust in authority, matters fundamentally in science and religion. If there is one overarching concern I have that motivates this talk, it's not primarily what people believe about the moon or even whom they trust as authorities, but rather how they trust these authorities and what power these authorities wield over us as a result. 
I want to treat science, religion, and other major institutions of epistemic and moral authority with respect, but take them off their pedestals in what I will call a blending of commitment and critique. I want to rebuild science and religion from the bottom up, that is, from the trust we place in them that gives them the right to command our attention. Trust places us in a position of openness to profound insights, but it also places us in a position of vulnerability. Blending commitment and critique recognizes that trust and authority is a good and necessary thing, but that these authorities are, after all, thoroughly human and finite entities. They are, in the truest sense of the old Buddhist proverb, the finger, and not the moon. And we must never forget that both are implicated in the act of pointing. I'd now like to share the results of a National Science Foundation-sponsored research project I have administered over the last several years in conjunction with several students. I'd especially like to acknowledge two graduate students, Evan Berry of Religious Studies and Tricia Mine of Sociology, who worked alongside me. Among other topics, the project concerned the trust Americans place in four domains of authority for matters of true and false, right and wrong. We all know that there are different levels of public trust in institutions of science and religion, but science and religion do not stand alone as domains of epistemic and moral authority. One of our faculty discussants for tonight, Catherine Albanese of Religious Studies, has written extensively on what she calls nature religion in America, a phenomenon she traces from our contemporary environmental age back to the times of early European settlement. As the famous American architect Frank Lloyd Wright once said, I believe in God, only I spell it nature. The case of nature religion suggests that many people place nature alongside science and religion as an important authority. Think of, for instance, how much we tend to trust products that are natural, the ways many people regard nature as a source of spiritual insight, or the notion that society based on the principles of nature would be in a much better condition than it is now. These notions build upon long-standing historical traditions. The tradition of natural law, descending at least from St. Thomas Aquinas of the 13th century and arguably reaching back to Aristotle, in which standards of morality are related to the nature of the world and of humans. And the rather different tradition of naturalism, devoted to regarding culture, sorry, nature, as a substitute for God in explaining human and physical reality. Nature is thus an interestingly complex authority spanning theism, spirituality, and anti-supernaturalism alike. To this trilogy, I added government or state as a fourth authority based in part on the work of scholars of religion such as Robert Bella on a phenomenon they call civil religion, a veneration of state and national identity which also implies a trust in government not simply as a political power but for larger epistemic and moral matters as well. I then was interested in exploring the trust Americans place in these four authorities, science, religion, nature, and state. We also were interested in trust in self, but discovered that few people were willing to admit that they didn't trust themselves. So the notion of self as authority won't be included here tonight. 
There are important differences between and complexities within these authorities which must be acknowledged at the outset. For example, science, religion, and the state can readily be identified with human institutions, but nature is an elusive and abstract category, perhaps more of a subliminal authority than the others. Additionally, these authorities can mean different things to different people. Science, for instance, can mean technology to one person and a certain form of rationality to another, while religion could mean God or it could simply mean the thoroughly human institutions of religion which many Americans escape by calling themselves spiritual, not religious. Because of these and other complexities, I utilize a dual methodological strategy involving a quantitative survey of over 1,000 Americans administered between April and June 2002 by UCSB's own Social Science Survey Center and a follow-up set of in-depth qualitative interviews of roughly 100 selected survey respondents over the summer of 2002. Let's remember a few features of 2002 related to trust and authority. Perhaps the most important item was a continued U.S. response to the terror attacks of September 11, 2001. If we had delivered the survey and interviews just one year prior, the political climate would have been altogether different. Recall that for at least some Americans, the election of George Bush to the presidency in late 2000 was mired in questionable legal practices stretching from Florida to the Supreme Court. 9-11 gave the U.S. an enemy and with it a new authority to the president and the federal government. By spring 2002, the enemy was increasingly portrayed as Iraq, specifically Saddam Hussein. Preparations were being finalized for the new Department of Homeland Security. Terror alerts continued throughout the country, and in general, the issue of trust or distrust in government was perhaps never more timely, as Americans struggled to make sense of these sweeping changes affecting the country and their lives. The status of other authorities was in the news as well. Religion received both increased zeal and scrutiny in the light of September 11th, and the connection between religion and government was highlighted in June 2002 when the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the words under God and the Pledge of Allegiance amount to a government endorsement of religion, prompting leaders on all sides of the political fence to rush to decry the ruling. Though, if political cartoons are any indication of the breadth of public opinion, Americans were more divided, expressing both trust and distrust in God, government, conservatives, and liberals in the context of the controversy. Religion received attention for another reason as well in the spring of 2002. The sex scandals of Catholic priests and the apparent cover-up by the church. 
In comparison to the state and religion, science and nature received relatively less attention. Though there was some concern over genetics and cloning. As well as the marked shift of the Bush administration in environmental policy. But trust and distrust was expressed in other realms as well, from baseball in the summer of 2002 to the revelations throughout the year of major corporate scandals and their possible connections with the Bush administration. With all this bad news, you would think that Americans would have expressed high levels of distrust in authority. This refusal to accept authority at face value was an apparent feature of the country that so enamored one famous 19th century European student of American democracy, the Frenchman Alexis de Tocqueville, that he envisioned a new model of authority emanating from the American experience. To de Tocqueville, the bonds of traditional authority were weak even in the American family. In America, the family, in the Roman and aristocratic signification of the word, does not exist. As soon as the young American approaches manhood, the ties of filial obedience are relaxed day by day. Master of his thoughts, he is soon master of his conduct. When the condition of society becomes democratic, and men adopt as their general principle that it is good and lawful to judge of all things for oneself using former points of belief, not as rule of faith, but simply as a means of information, the powers which the opinions of a father exercise over those of his sons diminishes. Yet in comparison, trust in authority in contemporary America is generally stronger than in other European societies. Results from a 1998 survey conducted under the auspices of the International Social Science Program suggest that Americans display a much higher trust in religion than other European countries and a somewhat higher trust in government than many of these countries. An earlier ISSP survey from 1993 asked respondents to indicate their trust in science, and it also had an interesting question concerning sacredness in nature, which we can use as a surrogate for some form of deep trust in nature. These results show that Americans tend to trust science more than other countries included in the survey, but do not trust nature as highly as in many other countries. Thus, on a relative scale, we Americans are near the top in trust in religion, close to the top in trust in science, above average in trust in government, and below average in trust in nature. Now let's examine the results of the survey. I included a variety of questions about trust in these authorities. In many cases, we found that to make our telephone survey more concrete and understandable, we had to frame these four domains of authority in the context of people who represented them. So that, for instance, the domain of religion was framed as, quote, insights gained from religion, including the views of religious leaders. This complicated our analysis somewhat, but results from the qualitative interviews helped us sort out these composite categories. We gauged respondents' levels of concern for 12 categories of policy issues, and for those where a high level of concern was expressed, we asked respondents to rate science, religion, nature, and state as authoritative sources of information or guidance with respect to that policy issue. Then we calculated the average trust expressed for each of these authorities. 
We also included questions for each of these four authorities that probed the possibility of what one could call hypertrust, an extreme or exclusive trust in authority. Finally, toward the end of the survey, we asked respondents to give a summary rating of their overall trust in these authorities as sources of information or guidance for their lives. I can give you some general statistics. In terms of overall trust for these four authorities on a scale of 0 to 10 with 5 as a midpoint, average trust expressed by Americans was relatively comparable, ranging from 5.5 for government to 6.7 for science, with religion and nature in between. You can also see from the vertical error bar lines on each graph that there is much more variability in the responses of Americans on religion, for instance, than science. This means that religion is both trusted strongly and distrusted relatively strongly in our society. For the questions on hypertrust, there was more variability between authorities. As examples, the mean response to the statement, science will eventually answer all important questions about humans, the world, and the universe, was only 3.7 on a scale of 0 to 10, whereas the Bible is a literal word of God had an average of 5.8, there would be more peace and harmony in society if we simply followed nature at an average of 5.4, and, though one could well argue that recent public opinion contradicts this, the statement our American government can be trusted to tell the truth at an average of only 3.5. Note from the error bars in each of these statements that each of these statements elicited considerable variability among Americans, though few people showed strong hypertrust in science and in state. What is more interesting than overall statistics, however, are the patterns in trust placed by individuals in these four authorities. Examining the overall trust responses, for instance, one sees a strong correlation between trust in religion and trust in state, and another strong correlation between trust in science and trust in nature. What this means is that people who tended to trust or distrust religion felt likewise about the government, and the same with nature and science. By applying a procedure called factor analysis to all 16 trust variables, these patterns come into sharper focus as two primary underlying factors or composite models of trust are revealed. The first is characterized by hypertrust or distrust in religion, including strong adherence to traditional theological tenets, and trust or distrust in state. This factor alone explains nearly a quarter of all the differences or variants in the entire set of 16 variables. A second model is close behind, the model of linked trust in science and nature. This model, too, has both adherence and detractors. Following typical factor analysis procedure, these two models are assumed to be independent of each other. It's not that Americans choose either God and government or science and nature. They could choose both or neither. We will, however, find violations of this assumption soon. Interestingly, there is relatively little association of these models with standard demographics. This means that those who are young and old, male and female, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, can be found supporting or opposing both models. However, in one strong difference between the two models, people who trust religion and state tend to identify as politically conservative and as morally conservative, whereas the opposite is true of those who trust in science and nature. 
It is also interesting to consider where those who scored high and low on these two models of trust reside in the United States. Our ability to do so is somewhat limited in that we had only slightly over 1,000 respondents distributed across the entire country. But if you group respondents by two-digit zip code prefix, some interesting geographical patterns emerge. These maps are grayed out in areas where we had too few respondents or too much variability in their responses. The averages for each of the remaining areas are divided into four quartiles, the highest representing, in this case, strong trust in religion and state relative to other parts of the country are dark green, and the lowest representing strong distrust are dark brown. There is evidently a great deal of variability in each region of the United States. Look at California, for instance, with regions ranging from strong trust to strong distrust. Similarly, the map for the science and nature model shows extensive variability at the two-digit zip code level, though in some regions, trust for this model is opposite that of the first model. Another implication we should draw from these maps is that the caricature of each, say the Bible Belt, for those who trust in God and government, is limited. Trust and distrust in these two models is much more widespread across the country than one would initially imagine. So far, we have only examined responses to our survey questions, but we also interviewed selected respondents in depth, and we asked those who scored in the top and bottom quintile, or 20% of each of these models of trust, to say more about it. Among those who trust strongly in God and government, you do find some relatively pure cases of trust. As in respondent number 584, a 61-year-old, well-educated woman from Alabama. I was raised to trust God, and I do. And again, I think that our government is better than anywhere else that we could be, and I would like to think that people are trying to do right. But just as often, those who scored the highest were reluctant to speak as if they trusted everything they heard, especially from the government. For instance, respondent 608, a 19-year-old Latina student from California, says, I believe in certain religious things. I don't know I believe in the government, but I believe they're, they're not doing as much as they could be doing. So that's why I don't believe as highly in government as I do in religion, because with religion I can have my own beliefs. Those on the other end of the spectrum, however, were quite willing to characterize themselves as not trusting in religion and state, and some offered their own theories as to the linkage. For instance, respondent 466, a 56-year-old female from Michigan, says, I think the linkage between religion and state is accurate insofar as government and religion are hierarchies. Religion is a hierarchy, an ecclesiastical hierarchy. Government is a bureaucracy. Those types of entities with my relationship and my recent history with them, I'm talking about the last half a century, are not credible. They are not truth-tellers. They are at times, but they are not purveyors of truth as much as they are formers of opinion and modifiers of behavior. In the case of the second model of trust and authority, those who scored in the top quintile were quite willing to admit their trust in science and nature. Respondent 561, for instance, a 60-year-old man from Washington State, says, well, I mean, science brings us the truth as best as they can, and nature is the truth, and we need both to have a balanced way to survive. 
On the other hand, those who scored in the bottom quintile were similarly willing to express either strong distrust or irrelevance to their lives. For instance, Respondent 28, a wealthy 44-year-old from Pennsylvania, says, Science doesn't necessarily have all the answers, although they may think so. You look at some of the scientists, and they think we all evolved from some exploding dinosaur. But I don't think so. I trust nature in the fact that nature's here, and it's been provided by God, but I don't trust that for my source of being. These responses raise a very important question. Why the strong alliance between religion and state, and between nature and science? The interviews suggest lots of possible combinations, but the overall pattern is clear. I will venture two answers at this point. The first is probably obvious to you. This is, in part, how these authorities are packaged in contemporary American culture, especially the connection between God and government. We need look, look no further than our president, for whom commentators have frequently noted how he resorts to religious language and images. As you recall, his 2003 State of the Union message, for instance, ended with an explicit linkage of God and American destiny. The liberty we prize is not American's gift to the world, it is God's gift to humanity. We Americans have faith in ourselves, but not in ourselves alone. We do not know all the ways of providence, yet we can trust in them, placing our confidence in the loving God behind all of life and all of history. May he guide us now, and may God continue to bless the United States of America. A second explanation is more speculative, but worth considering. There is an interesting structural similarity between these two models. Each has an author ultimate authority, religion, or ultimately God on one hand, and nature on the other, as well as an authoritative human institution, the state or science, which represents and communicates the truths of their respective ultimate authority in the human realm. Now, of course, in the case of religion and government, this association is tantamount to theocracy, a violation of the U.S. constitutional separation of church and state, Yet support for a linkage of church and state is stronger in the United States than in many other countries. Consider these 1998 ISSP results for the statement, my country would be better if religion had less influence, in which the United States' mean response strongly opposed this statement, surpassing Canada, Great Britain, Northern Ireland, Italy, Russia, and Israel. The second model's linkage between science and nature is well represented in many people's views of ecology. Here again, perhaps less problematically than with the theocracy model, the human institution of science is understood as an authoritative conduit for the ultimate authority of nature. Now let's think more deeply about trust and authority. I'll begin by making a few important points, points which are perhaps self-evident, yet are often forgotten. First, trust in science and religion is prior to belief. Many studies of the popular uptake of science and or religion focus on beliefs, such as theism, evolutionism, or materialism as indicative of behavior. But ours is a highly plural world of meaning in which diverse truths are proclaimed. To return to our former analogy, many fingers, each pointing at a particular moon. 
Trust is the filter that commits us to certain of these beliefs and avoids others, based on the messenger as well as the message. We choose which authoritative finger to point our own fingers at, and based on this commitment, we open ourselves to understanding the moon as revealed by this or that authoritative finger. That's why I am more concerned about trust than belief. Trust is prior to belief. Secondly, trust in science and religion may be necessary, yet entails vulnerability. As in personal relationships, trust involves commitment without full understanding or control, which we do not have over this world, not even our own lives. We cannot simply point our own finger to the moon in an act of defiant isolation. To some degree, we must depend also on those fingers we consider authoritative. But this commitment places us in a vulnerable position. We could be manipulated or manipulate ourselves. Many people have blamed religion for preying upon vulnerable souls, but science, or more specifically, a certain form of rationality associated with science, has come under scrutiny as well. Ultimately, what I'd like to argue is that, given their powerful role as authorities, science and religion must encourage more mature forms of trust which blend commitment and critique. For better and for worse, many of us trust science and or religion to guide our lives. We must choose wisely, but these authoritative fingers pointing to the moon have a duty to encourage trust with both eyes open. Trust that blends the commitment of pointing our finger this way or that with the critical insight that we are, after all, only pointing our fingers at other fingers and not at the moon itself. Let's see how we can move toward this final point by way of an expanded discussion of trust and authority. What do I mean by trust? I distinguish trust from two related terms, faith and confidence. Faith implies for many people a sort of blind conveyance of trust, something unreasonable, irrational. It is a term many people reserve for religion. Yet, physical chemist turned philosopher Michael Polanyi argued that faith is central to the scientist's commitment to the beliefs and norms of the scientific community. And philosopher Mary Midgley has written that science is another form of religion, offering an alternative path to salvation for those who will put their faith in the scientific world picture. Indeed, Midgley defines faith much as I define trust, saying... Faith is not primarily a belief in particular facts. The faith we live by is something that you must have before you can ask whether anything is true or not. It is basic trust. It is acceptance of a map, a perspective, a set of standards and assumptions, an enclosing vision within which facts are placed. It is a way of organizing the vast jumble of data. In our age, when that jumble is getting more and more confusing, the need for such principles of organization is not going away. It is increasing. I will retain the term trust versus faith to avoid confusion over certain readings of faith and also to emphasize the relational character of trust. If faith is an act on the part of the faithful, trust is both a premise and a desired outcome of a relationship. This is where trust differs from confidence, a term often used in social surveys. What is your level of confidence in the economy, the media, and so on? But confidence is an instrumental, not a relational property. One decides whether or not to invest in stocks based on confidence, but one decides whether or not to invest one's life in a relationship or a meaningful network of relationships, such as a religious organization, based on trust. 
Most of the literature on trust concerns its significance in interpersonal and professional relationships, regarding it anywhere from a mere social and economic lubricant to an intensely personal but inescapable politically set, sorry, inescapably political set of what Anthony Giddens calls facework commitments to the fundamental existential challenge in the first year of human life. My interest lies in extending the capacity for trust learned from interpersonal relations to more distant authorities. This is similar to what Giddens calls faceless commitments and Nicholas Luhmann calls system trust, except trust and authority often takes forms which are quite personal and concrete rather than impersonal and abstract. When people say they trust in God, they do not generally imply some broad platonic principle. Even when people say their trust lies in scientific rationality and not God, the level of commitment and passion implied in this form of trust is often as deeply personal as that of the theist. An important question concerns the why of trust and authority. As noted in the Mary Midgley quote earlier, it would be naive to think that the necessity for trust and authority has diminished in modern times. Perhaps our allegiances have shifted, and the decline in religious authority is especially evident in Europe, but trust appears to be here to stay. Luhmann argues that the very nature of modernity is its unmanageable complexity. Necessitating trust is the basis for the inevitable risk-taking behavior in which we all must engage. But trust and authority is not simply an individual act on our parts, as authority is both produced and consumed. Institutions of authority expend considerable effort in achieving and maintaining legitimacy, that is, in securing our trust. To explore this two-way street of producing and consuming authority, the term authority requires further clarification. As with trust, authority is a relational concept. It does not exist unless it is recognized. Hannah Arendt distinguishes authority from relationships based on coercion on the one hand and mere persuasion on the other. Authority involves an agreed-upon hierarchy. The Oxford English Dictionary distinguishes between two types of authority, involuntary authority, such as political and legal systems, which demand our obedience, whether or not we agree with them, and voluntary authority, that which concerns us here. My interest lies in authority as involving two forms of content, epistemic authority over what is true and false in how the world is, and moral authority over what is right and wrong and how the world ought to be. Authority is usually discussed in its political context, but assertions concerning epistemic and moral matters are arguably found in all contexts in which authority is exercised. It is convenient to think of science as a purely epistemic authority and religion as a purely moral authority. Then they would be legitimate in their respective realms and there is no possibility of conflict. Such was the argument of the late Harvard paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould, who suggested that science and religion constitute noma, or non-overlapping magisteria. Gould's Noma argument, though popular with many people and certainly conciliatory towards science and religion, nonetheless presents highly truncated notions of both scientific and religious authority. It is true that scientific authority is often grounded by reference to expert opinions on the facts, and religious authority is often claimed primarily over matters of value, but these schemes represent more of a political settlement worked out over the last few centuries than a reflection of some neat divide between facts and values, a commonly assumed schema with surprisingly little philosophical justification. 
This leads to an interesting challenge, what I call the competing gods problem. There are many claims to authority out there which cannot be entirely ignored. As we discovered with religion and state and with nature and science, a common answer to the competing gods problem is to forge alliances, to link up one's authority with another authority so as to declare an alignment of the constellations. This approach is exceedingly effective, perhaps because it addresses the discomfort most people experience with cognitive dissonance between two competing authoritative claims. Thus, perhaps, the groundswell of interest in harmonizing science and religion, which seems primarily driven by a need to bring them into alliance. Consider the imagined relations between science, religion, and state in the tragedy that took place over the skies of the United States stretching between California and Texas in the morning of February 1st this year. Here, science and science-based technology was both the underlying rationale and the source of protection for six Americans and one Israeli crew member as the U.S. Space Shuttle Columbia as they hurtled through space. Yet the comforting authority many people place on scientific expertise was shattered as the space shuttle itself and its fragile occupants were lost following heat buildup upon reentry. Many of the editorial cartoons of the time focused on generally justifying the issue at hand, namely scientific exploration. But many, many more resorted to highly anthropomorphic images of religion as the god of what were apparently six Christians and one Jew served as the ultimate protector. Others linked the tragedy directly to the American political identity. These images contrasted sharply with the very technical reports emanating from NASA. The strategies available to NASA officials as they struggled to regain trust in their authority was limited. They could not build explicit alliances with state or with religion to share the blame. But NASA officials were aided nonetheless by a political and cultural climate in which God and government were closely allied with the space shuttle mission. Yes, science stumbled, but the very important scientific, economic, and moral questions concerning manned space research never found their way onto the editorial cartoons because of this distributed political and cultural effort to ensure that the broader authoritative network, this overarching alliance of religion, science, and state was maintained. There are certain philosophical meta-arguments common to science and religion in producing what appears to be convincingly legitimate authority. I'd like to mention one, objectivity, a claim to authoritative certainty on a reality separate from those claims, a moon far removed from the finger. Science is famous for this, but objectivity is not an inevitable feature of scientific institutions. Philosopher and historian Stephen Toulmin has argued that European modernity involved not one but two traditions, an earlier tradition of Renaissance humanism grounded in a tolerant blend of religion, science, and the arts exemplified in the works of Erasmus, Montaigne, and Shakespeare, and what he calls the 17th century counter-Renaissance when economic crisis and religious struggle resulted in the emphasis on the rational pursuit of scientific object objectivity by key figures such as Descartes and Newton. 
Scientific objectivity can, in Toulmin's view, be traced directly back to the 17th century struggle for certainty. It is now as it was then, epistemologically unnecessary to science, but politically advantageous in grounding claims of authority in uncertain times. There are perhaps deeper reasons and contradictions underlying the premise of objectivity as well. Science studies scholar Evelyn Fox Keller invokes feminist and psychoanalytical theory in her attempt to fathom objectivity. The objectivist illusion reflects back a self as autonomous and objectified, an image of individuals unto themselves, severed from the outside world of other objects, animate as well as inanimate, and simultaneously from their own subjectivity. Objectivity is as much a feature of the transcendent God of certain Western religious traditions as a transcendent reality of Descartes. Yet religion in claiming authority not just on matters about God, but matters of the subject, the religious believer as well, necessarily adopts a divided stance on objectivity. Religion becomes in essence both true along objectivist lines and true for me in the subjectivist eyes of the believer, both a fact and a value. The problem with the whole scheme, as suggested in several lectures in this series, is that objects and subjects are not separable. In fact, as Harold Oliver argued in his lecture last year, one can understand objects and subjects as derivative of relations. It is not that objects and subjects happen to relate, but that the very sense of object and subject assumes a prior relation between them. More concretely, there are profound ethical problems with the fact-value distinction implied in the object-subject dichotomy, where facts cling to objects and values cling to subjects. Ethics become marginalized in science devoid of values, yet amount to moralizing among certain religious groups who claim to hold the truth on values. If you don't believe the claims of objectivity are central to scientific or religious authority, try challenging this philosophical premise among adherents and see what happens. I suggest you keep a safe distance when you do this. Thankfully, there are many devoted scientists and religious followers who have no problem admitting that objectivity is not the most accurate way to understand the truths they pursue or believe so passionately. But there are many who respond with mixed scorn and pity for the ignorance of those who cannot see the light. The story is repeated among scientists, for instance, of how physicist Alan Sokal proved the intellectual vacuity of would-be assailants of objectivity once and for all by publishing a parody of the movement in one of their very own journals, Social Text. Or on the side of religion, how would-be doubters of the existence of a transcendent God have long been proven wrong. This seems to be a particularly popular topic on the web. Interestingly, science is often cited as the authority in proving God's existence. So much for the production of authority. Now let us consider its consumption, because that is where each one of us comes in. One problem is what is known as authoritarianism, a mode of hypertrust in authority. Authoritarian personality theory was first suggested in the work of Eric Fromm. To Fromm, freedom is the essential right and responsibility of being human. But with the evolution of individualism came not more freedom, but less, as people rushed away from its responsibilities and challenges. 
This escape from freedom or fear of freedom, which Fromm witnessed in the aftermath of World War II, is primarily manifested in authoritarianism founded on the conviction that life is determined by forces outside of oneself, his interest, his wishes. The only possible happiness lies in submission to those forces. Fromm's theory was applied in a major empirical study by Theodor Adorno and others who explained it developmentally in terms of child-parent relations, postulated a number of features including authoritarian aggression and submission, superstition, black and white views, destructiveness, and heightened prejudice. Adorno's theory has been criticized on both conceptual and empirical grounds, but one early finding that has been supported in more recent studies is that some sort of authoritarianism seems characteristic of the political right, but not the political left. Related to authoritarianism or hypertrust is the problem of hyperobedience revealed in the classic but highly debated study by Stanley Milgram. In this famous project from the early 1960s, Milgram devised an experiment whereby subjects were instructed to administer electric shocks to students when they missed answers on a verbally administered quiz, increasing the level of shock with each mistake. The shocks were not real, but the students acted as if they were in considerable pain. Nonetheless, on the stern urging of the experimenter, the majority of subjects raised the shock level to the maximum of 450 volts. In spite of severe posted warnings on the device, the student's apparent pain, and the subject's own expressed doubts. Milgram says, this is the most fundamental lesson of our study. Ordinary people, simply doing their jobs, and without any particular hostility on their part, can become agents in a terrible destructive process. Moreover, even when the destructive effects of their work become patently clear and they are asked to carry out actions incompatible with fundamental standards of morality, relatively few people have the resources needed to resist authority. Yet, authoritarianism and obedience are complex. We found this by asking people if they had doubts about their trust in authority, which many of our respondents were quite willing to share with us. Respondent 195, a 33-year-old woman from Texas, for instance, said of science, the distrust comes with thinking that they've got this report out on this now, but 10 years from now, they're going to realize they were wrong or there's more to it, and so you wonder how much to believe. And of religion. Just more and more I'm seeing that there's a lot of corruption in religious leaders, as there are with anybody else in a position of power, and it makes me wonder if the organizational part of religion is really necessary. And of government. I'm never sure what to believe when one thing comes out because there's always going to be something else, and half the time you're not getting the whole story. And in nature. Not so much of a struggle over trust with that as with the others. I mean, nature in and of itself is not really trying to be deceptive. There may be mysteries, but it's not an intentional deception. What does all this mean? In particular, is trust in science and or religion necessarily linked with authoritarian obedience, or does it lead to more responsible forms? I could produce evidence supporting a favorable or harsh reading of both, but there are warning signs. For instance, think of the old standard hymn, Trust and Obey. And the injunction in the New Testament, one I often hear on Christian radio talk shows, from Romans 13, which states, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God 
has established. Science has no equivalent sacred text with such explicit wording, and yet, in its common claims to objectivity and universality, its common excuse that values are beyond the pale of science, that there, there can be an implicit call to a similarly singular obedience. Would generalized hypertrust in science in our society be as bad as generalized hypertrust in religion? I am not sure. I suspect that authoritarianism is possible with any authority, but is certainly exacerbated if encouraged by that institution of authority. Consider, by way of conclusion, three alternatives for science, religion, and the webs of trusting relationships we spin with them. The first option, the authoritarian vision, is commitment without critique. Science and religion possess insights to dazzling realities, and we would do well to follow them without question. The second is its opposite, critique without commitment, perhaps embodied in the paradigm of secularization. The third alternative is to embrace the paradox of blending commitment and critique, to refuse to believe that these are zero-sum entities, such that the more committed you are, the less your apparent capacity to think for yourself, and the more critical you become, the less bound you apparently are to communities that struggle for meaning. I would like to reflect on these three options by closing, as I began, with reference to a major film on science and religion, one I suspect you may have seen. In 1890, an aspiring writer declared the following. The age of faith is sinking slowly into the past. Our new unfaith gives us an eager longing to penetrate the secrets of nature. An aspiration for knowledge we have been taught is forbidden. The number of churchgoers is gradually growing less. The people are beginning to think that studying science is the enemy of the church. Science, however, we know to be true. Ten years later, this writer published a little book titled The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. And nearly 50 years later, the movie we all know so well was released. Apparently, what the Chronicles of Narnia were for English literature scholar and Christian apologist C.S. Lewis, The Wizard of Oz was, perhaps in a quite different sense, for L. Frank Baum, a popular children's tale presenting a subtle yet sweeping statement about religion. But what exactly was Baum trying to say? One interpretation, as suggested in his quote noted above, is the triumph of rational critique over religious commitment. This is from an essay entitled, The Wizard of Oz as the Ultimate Atheist Metaphor. In the film, The Wizard of Oz, L. Frank Baum and Noel Langley have created the quintessential story of mankind's triumph over our primitive beliefs in the supernatural, in organized religion, and even in God. Well, well. Now let us consider a rather different interpretation, one that prefers the option of commitment by faith without doubting or certainly critique to God's path. This interpretation comes from a sermon entitled Christian Themes in the Wizard of Oz. Very often God will require that we step out in faith to do what would to all appearances seem to be impossible. The wizard says, bring me the broomstick of the wicked witch of the west. Bring me her broomstick and I'll grant your requests. 
To all outward appearances, to fetch the broomstick of the wicked witch would seem an impossible task. But with the help of God, all things are possible. And so it is for those who follow the path of the Lord, the path of righteousness. If we are obedient, God will get us through the frightening and evil things we encounter. I prefer the third option of blending commitment and critique. As I've suggested earlier, commitment without critique is not only dangerous, it is ultimately irresponsible in the deepest sense of personal responsibility. But commitment without critique is at least an option. Critique without commitment is not. To imagine that one is an entirely independent and free thinker, that one trusts no authority outside of oneself, is delusional. We can change our commitments, but we cannot cease to commit ourselves to some form of epistemic and moral authority. Trust thyself, Emerson invoked. But if each of us trusted only what we directly experience and understand, our lives would grind to a halt. We get, I believe, no better sense of the life of blending commitment and critique than is revealed near the conclusion to The Wizard of Oz. Dorothy and her companions who traveled far to find the wizard and then undertook a perilous assignment at his demand have finally vanquished the wicked witch of the West and have returned to the wizard. And he is still a terrifying authority to them. Yet as Scarecrow points out to Dorothy in this picture, her humble dog Toto has revealed that the great and powerful Oz is just an ordinary man standing behind a curtain. But the movie does not end there. The human face of authority does not necessarily deny its potential for wisdom, a far deeper form of authority than one based on power and inaccessibility. The Wizard of Oz is just a man, but he is a rather wise man and imparts to Dorothy and her companions gifts that are far more profound than they had requested. Each comes with a sly twist. As, for example, the wizard presents a diploma to the scarecrow, he confers on him the honorary degree of THD, not a doctorate in theology, but a doctorate in what the wizard calls thinkology. By trusting this man, even after his mystique has vanished, Dorothy and her companions are transformed. Dorothy ultimately learns that she must trust herself in order to get home. But by trusting the wizard, she and her companions have learned to trust themselves. This is where blending commitment and critique come together as both necessitate trust. Trust in the wisdom that lies beyond oneself implied in commitment and trust of one's own doubts and strengths implied in critique. Let us remember that by pulling the curtains open on science, religion, nature, the state, or any other authority we guide to, we trust to guide us, we will reveal the inescapable humanness of these institutions of authority. They are but the finger pointing to the moon. There is, I would venture, no great and powerful Oz, at least in the form of a man up in the clouds out there, nor in the form of some scientifically tractable force out there guiding the unfolding of the universe. But there decidedly is something we experience called the moon, and we make sense of that experience in part by trusting those authorities we deem wise. My hope is that this three-year lecture series has suggested how commitment and critique can indeed get along, how both religious and scientific commitment can be big enough to embrace the hard questions the scholarly community, which itself embodies certain commitments it must acknowledge, 
will pose. It will take an effort from each one of us, but we can collectively take science and religion off their pedestals, invigorate them with humanity and humility, and ultimately develop a deeper trust and respect for them and for each other in the process. Thank you. I'm not sure if Brendon has the three by five cards, but I'll invite him to go ahead and pass them out if he, they're passed out. Okay, very good. Um, without further ado then, I'd like to uh, invite Professor uh, Catherine Albanese of our Religious Studies Department to come up and she'll be followed without uh, me taking over the podium by John Cruz. Oh, I can't see you because the light's so bright, but I'll believe you're out there. <laughs> Jim Proctor's very interesting and masterfully illustrated lecture teases us with its title. Surely there's a moon, and as he says, there are fingers pointing to the moon, and there are fingers pointing to the fingers pointing to the moon. As a scholar teacher, uh, Proctor has issued a compelling call for, for critical thinking in the context of commitment, a call that, I think, means that the university should be teaching critical thinking and that humans, as they have always done, will choose and make their own commitments, hopefully incorporating critical thinking. To Proctor's credit, as he develops this argument, he arrives not on the moon, but on the solid earth where he knows the territory and can stand and witness. All of that said, I'm especially intrigued by the announcement that invites us to come to the lecture, an announcement in which there is a provocative blank. The title engages us without telling us finally in what or whom we ultimately trust. As a historian of American religion, I am mightily tempted to fill in the blank from a perspective that begins with colonial times, lingers in the middle and late years of the 19th century, and then launches itself precipitously through the 20th century and into the present. I am tempted because I believe that the view from American religious history suggests that the participants in Proctor's survey who provide such solid substance to the lecture may be claiming an authority for religion that is too generous if scrutinized with a historical eye. Proctor's survey itself is complex, nuanced, and multifaceted. It matches science and, and nature on one side and religion and nation on the other pointing toward competing sources of authority and vested interests all around. It does give science a slight edge in the authority hierarchy, but its very complexity can lead away from a point about the place of religion in American society that I believe is worth pondering. Hence, I would like to suggest that as a thought experiment, we frame the issues a bit differently. What if we consider the respondents to the survey as exercising one kind of rhetoric? 
What if we play with the possibility that may, there, there may be other rhetorics about the place of religion that Americans employ in public and private settings? And what if we play with the further idea that these rhetorics, these ways of talking, if you will, emerge from prior root metaphors that ground language and our ability to discern the meaning of our world? In this experimental way of framing things, these root metaphors are poetic acts. They precede conceptual forms of thinking and valuing, and they tell us in what or whom we place our trust. Moreover, we can usually hear these rhetorics best not directly, but in subtler tones, in echoes, and in the sly ways that poetry symbolizes itself into being. In short, let us suppose that these rhetorics function in a world of symbol and can take visual form, too, in that world. If we turn very briefly to the history of American religion from this perspective, we find considerable evidence that religion in the American context has characteristically often been subsumed into something deemed greater. We get a quick snapshot of the process, for example, and I have no slide to illustrate, in the Philadelphia Constitutional Parade of 1788 on the 4th of July, after enough states had ratified the new constitution to make it a go. Among the 88 divisions of the Philadelphia Parade that lasted all day, there was one in which we are told the clergy of the different Christian denominations with the rabbi of the Jews were walking arm in arm. In the spectacular symbolism of the parade, religion was just one trade practiced in the body politic, and religious difference was effaced in the presence of the new and higher federal authority. If religion bowed before national authority, it was learning to bow, too, before science. Already in colonial times, Puritan leaders as exponents of the Enlightenment were often as up on their science as on their religion. Jonathan Edwards, for example, who has been called America's greatest theologian and who preached America's first great revival, based his vivid and terrifying style of preaching not on raw emotion, but on the calculated epistemological analysis of John Locke, who argued that humans learned exclusively through their senses. For Edwards, sensationalism, in effect, became God's way of doing things. One needed to work scientifically to help God win souls. Later, in the mid-19th century, when spiritualism became a cultural rage in a far different sort of America, spiritualists, who believed that they were communicating with the dead, considered themselves to be on the cutting edge of science and invited Harvard professors to their seances to verify the ghosts. By the later years of the 19th century, new scientific religions were cropping up on the American landscape. There was Christian science, religious science, divine science, science of mind. Theosophists were demanding a scientific analysis of religion, and so were free-thinking critics in the Free Religious Association. Protestant conservatives, 
and the Princeton theology were hailing the Bible as a scientific document, what they called a book of facts. And by the 20th century, also among conservatives, a Seventh-day Adventist apologist could talk of the scientifically proven visions of Ellen G. White, the Adventist prophetess, meaning that her visions had been corroborated by scientific evidence. Fundamentalists could announce that science was proving that Noah's Ark had been found and that by the 21st century, the tomb of Jesus had been discovered. Creation scientists were arguing for an upheaval of the fossil record in the Genesis flood so that science proved the biblical creation account. Catholics were carbon dating the relic at Turin, Italy, which they said was the holy shroud in which Jesus had been laid for burial. Meanwhile, as new Asian export religions entered the U.S., proponents of transcendental meditation, which also called itself the science of creative intelligence, could point to the statistics showing that when a critical mass of meditators lived in one place, crime rates went down, and when individual meditators were faithful to the practice, their blood pressure normalized and their heart rates grew closer to optimum. Indian and non-Indian Indian Americans alike praised the ancient science of yoga. And New Agers, with their combinative West-East spirituality, regularly invoked quantum physics to establish their truth claims. What all of this suggests, of course, is that science in these cases is authorizing religion and that there are hierarchical relationships among authorities that look somewhat different from the greater evenness revealed in the rhetoric of respondents in the Proctor survey. To be sure, there are other rhetorics that suggest the power of religion still. President Bush's religious leanings have recently, for example, been the object of media scrutiny. But I know of no bona fide scientists who point to religion to authorize their findings. And in the end, my reading as a historian of American religion is shaped by these historical rhetorics of deference to science by religious proponents. Here, science is at the top of the value hierarchy in U.S. culture and has been so for some time. In sum, I am saying that there are rhetorics and there are rhetorics. People often tell the truth most clearly when they are not trying to tell the truth when it leaks out of them unaware, and when we catch it almost as background buzz. So, I would fill in Jim Proctor's blank with science. Thank you. First, I would like to thank Jim for inviting me to speak and comment on his paper. It's an honor and a privilege to do so. Uh, he's a wonderful colleague, and as those of you who have followed this series will know, it's that kind of energy and commitment with critique that makes uh, this university such a wonderful place to be. Jim presents us with a provocative as well as inviting scenario. A proposal to re-envision religion and science in ways that avoid the twin mental rigidities of commitment without critique and critique without commitment. 
Both orientations to truth claims have their serious blind spots. I'm reminded of something I heard from somebody at some time somewhere, though I don't remember who said it or the context, <laughs> but it went something like this. John, there are two kinds of people in the world, those who act up a storm but who are afraid to think, and those who think up a storm but are afraid to act. This memory uh, was jogged by Jim's juxtaposition of the two options of commitment without critique and critique without commitment. I suppose these are ideal type positions uh, in their, in their bold, baldness, I, I, I presume. Many of us oscillate between these two moments, as seems to be indicated in the survey as well. Jim is concerned with bringing a new kind of humility that might bring religion and science closer together in critically mutual reflexivity. Indeed, as I glean from this whole series, some kind of rapprochement might be in the air, at least in the context of highly reflexive symposia like the kind Jim has so wonderfully organized over the recent years. But I wonder about rapprochement. It is certainly a good idea in that it involves engagement between religion and science. In the process of at least exploring rapprochement or critical engagement and dialogue, the impression is that the old bifurcation between science and religion is being broken down, as indeed it is in Catherine's talk, as both of these human enterprises, religion and science, begin to take stock of the merits of each other. One could get the impression that there is some kind of powerful paradigm shift taking place that brings these two human domains in relationship. But this could be a rather isolated conversation within the academy. I think there is some kind of critical reappraisal of the relationship between these two powerful modes of human thought. I say reappraisal because I think if one looks for it, one can find a number of occasions throughout history where the relationship between science and religion has been previously thrown into crisis. Indeed, the rise of my own discipline, sociology, can be read as something of a response to modernity and the place of religion in the larger question of social forms and social order. Jim's problematics also bring to mind the writings of Edmund Husserl, a philosopher who wrote a hundred years before Stephen Tolman did in pointing out or pointing his finger at the move from an earlier period in which multiple notions of knowledge making were embraced, scientific experimentation, the arts, literature, philosophy, etc., and referred quite broadly to the human sciences. Husserl posed what Jim poses. Where is the human dimension in the sophisticated structures of knowledge produced by religion, and in particular, science, in a book called The Crisis of European Sciences? He wrote about this crisis of the human sciences as they were being overtaken by the very narrow kind of specific science in the singular sense. And in Jim's case, this new modern singularity is codified in the notion of objectivity or objectivism. What concerned Husserl was the eclipse of the human subject, and with that any kind of responsibility to the power unleashed by knowledge. What was erased was the initial motivation, which Husserl called intentionality. And in Jim's presentation, the problem of intention and human interest takes the form of an inescapable notion of trust. For trust, or meaning, or intentionality is presupposed in both religion and science. Let us hold aside the notion that there may be underfoot some new rapprochement. I think it is safe to say that Jim presents his concerns for a blend of commitment and critique precisely because there isn't such a groundswell of new synthesis. 
or new synthesis. Indeed, we could argue that the older, more ossified orientations of science and religion are actually quite alive and well. And here I would raise the notion, excuse me, I would raise not the problem that this is a false dichotomy or that there is a discovery of new and deeper similarities that bind religion and science at some fundamental point of conceptual origins. Instead, I would suggest that if Jim's proposal for a humanistic revitalization is to gain some traction, it will have its work cut out for it. It will have to confront the existing juggernaut, and this he does. This brings us to the problem Jim has raised. How do we restore the human face, the embedded interests that are always present in the pursuit of the most intense knowledge claims, those of religion and science? And how do we admit that there is, how do we admit that there is a knowing enterprise that is not grounded in some notion of trust? Well, the first challenge is to acknowledge the human dimension of this theosophical as well as the calculating enterprises. For as Jim indicates, there are positions in both religion and science that leave no room for the human actor. Sheer facticity, pure objectivism that obliterates the calculating subject, as well as the otherworldly fate and transcendence are of a peculiar brightness under themselves in these cases and do not require the casting of a human shadow. Of no consequence is the actor who points and who, touch, and who touches things to leave human fingerprints. But there are many who do seek rapprochement in science and religion or if not rapprochement and harmony, at least critical dialogue. And in the popular culture, there are many who embrace science and religion without batting an eyebrow. And there is the very divide as well, excuse me, and there is the very divide as well where trust is given to science and not religion and vice versa. So if I understand Jim's concerns, acknowledging the human dimension in both religion and science is perhaps the most important front for a re-envisioning of science, politics, excuse me, science, religion, and trust. A little slip there, I'm coming to that term a little bit later. Indeed, the notion of trust is something like the third rail that drives both science and religion. And as Jim so eloquently puts it, trust should not be blind. It is, but it should not be blind. What does it mean to bring religion and science into the same page and anchored with a critical notion of trust? It has been said that religion and science have much in common. Indeed, one of the founders of modern sociology, Emil Durkheim, made the claim that science is indeed rooted in religious thought. He also went further, arguing that religion was the manifestation of society divinized. Both science and religion were rooted in the forms of society. In short, knowledge forms are derived from social forms. I raise this conflation of religion and science at or at least the notion of a deep affinity, not because it's useful for me to flag some founding father of sociology. No, there is a much more critical problem. And here the desired reconciliation implied in Jim's proposal, which pivots on redeeming a critical approach to the inescapability of trust as it is worked out in religion and science, will have its work cut out for it. But it's good work to be sure. Holding aside the conflation of religion and science, I would like to flag what I think are two quite distinct logics, which I'm sure will bore many of you who think about these issues with some passion and detail. Science and religion have quite different logics, logics that impact the notion of truth. In brief, science is like a shark. It cannot rest. Or, if you don't like the predatory metaphor, consider science to be something like an incurable insomniac. Science cannot ever rest assured. It cannot assume a complacent posture. 
It is not an eschatological enterprise in pursuit of final things. This does not mean that a scientist cannot have eschatological dreams. At its most lively moment, science is busy deconstructing and reconstructing. It is continually on the make, on the fly. Today's serious truth claims or regimes of knowledge confidence may very well be tomorrow's humor, if not rubble. One of science's major impulses is to undermine itself in order to continually remake itself. It is not interested in letting things settle, though settling things does become, at least temporarily, one of the fringe benefits of paid and commissioned science in alliance with corporate or political initiatives. Science is about the business of unsettling things. It is an activity in the name of knowing more, knowing different, knowing new, knowing better. The notion of better is, of course, loaded. It is the subject matter of ethics. Religion does not seem driven by this precise kind of logic. Yes, there is the impulse of knowing more, knowing with great care, and knowing better. I, I stand to be corrected by those who study religion, but in my limited knowledge of religion, it does not appear that religion is fundamentally about the business of undermining itself through acts of intention and normative routine. Science shifts through intentional routines that have the capacity to discredit and replace the old with the new. Undermining faith and belief is not the dominant challenge. How many Kierkegaardians do we know who dwell on such fantastically reflexive issues as Kierkegaard wrote of in his essays on doubt, fear and trembling, sickness unto death? That kind of practice, practice nihilism is better left to the Nietzscheans. Religious thought may prefer a mode of knowledge confidence that is an anathema to science. It does not mean that religion does not undermine itself. Max Weber's study of the Protestant ethic in the spirit of capitalism is an attempt to show just how religious crisis solved itself in ways that transformed the social world by recombining powerful religious ideas with the pragmatics of new interests. Contrary, excuse me, contrary to science, religion is not on the prowl for epistemological upheaval. And upheaval is thus not embraced with a kind of peculiar glee, though sometimes it appears to be the case for phases of intense revivals and restorations. There are lots of problems with this simple mental division of labor, so to speak, that distinguishes rather than conflates science and religion. Scientists do speak with enchantment over, say, the mathematics of string theory. And some may argue that in some cases, religion is precisely in the business of undermining mainly those others who have religion too, but the wrong kind, and who stand in the way of achieving certain worldly outcomes that are also rooted in religious interests. Likewise, some might argue that today, religion is on the fly, pointing to the proliferation of quasi-experimental new religions as evidence of quite new religious impulses that are not anchored denominationally. My point here is that the challenge that Jim has presented is indeed a provocative one. It insists on bringing a much-needed reflexivity into the picture. But it also points beyond science and religion and trust. It sidles up to the problem of knowledge claims that do or do not require or earn or do not earn social legitimacy. It also raises the problem not just of confidence in trust-based practices, but of accountability. It is the problem posed by the social scientist Robert Lind, who in the 30s wrote a book titled Knowledge for What, which captures the challenge of bringing humanity back into the picture. For if trust is requisite to both religion and science, and religion and science now produce multiple and rapidly multiplying outcomes, 
Then the matter becomes one of how we create systems of adjudicating not just divergent claims, but divergent outcomes that have tremendous implications for how we as humans live and how we as creatures of society become impacted by the decisions rooted in those initial acts of trust. Two urgent examples would be genetic engineering and designer biology and the national security state centralizing control over data mining made possible by the digital revolution. What lies in store for any project of re-envisioning science, religion, and trust is, is, has some difficult travel ahead in that nebulous terrain that we might call cultural politics. For this is where authority is ultimately lived out and brokered. It is where, excuse me, for this is where authority is ultimately lived out and brokered. Not in the lab or in the parish, but in the lives of people in social formations. It is where the human finger pointing takes on the form of civil society. Ultimately, knowledge claims do not exist in a social vacuum. They are brokered upon and through societies that carry out their impact. In some, Jim's provocative issue points to the cultural politics of knowledge. If trust shall not be blind, then crucial vision becomes urgent. Urgency has a way of generating intense conflict. The challenge, it seems, is to be able to embrace the fronts when the fonts of trust as part of our inescapable humanity and yet be able to adjudicate the implications that both science and religion ask of those who will be asked explicitly or inadvertently to carry the weight of such knowledge. I think Jim is right to pose the challenge. We need both commitment and critique. You're going to have to trust me. I'm going to be watching the clock here. And I think we'll, uh, we have many more questions tonight than I think we're going to be able to get through. Um, Jim, I'm wondering if you would like to respond uh, to start off. Or, and, but after your response, if you choose to have a response, uh, we have a couple questions on your survey. And then I have a couple of questions that I hope we'll get through uh, for all three of the panelists, or the presenter and the other two. I think I'll reserve time for the questions. Um, okay. Just briefly observe that I think both Catherine's notion of looking at the history and seeing a rather privileged place science takes is, is really powerful. Okay. We may want to explore that. And I think John's um, you know, somewhat different characterizations of science and religion probably bear further exploration, too. So I, I appreciate their comments. I think they amplify on the argument that I started. I have more questions here. I'm going to see that they get into the hands of our panelists and our presenter for tonight. I invite all of you to uh, share uh, either ice water or lemonade, cookies, fruit with us in the back. And if you'd like to come up and chat with our experts individually, please do so. And I'd like to personally thank Jim for having uh, won the grant that funded the series and for our two commentators tonight. Uh, and some of our presenters who are in the audience tonight for having attended. Uh, so one last round of applause and then the food. Thank you very much. <laughs>